Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I, I actually, what did you think of this trailer? I actually really liked it, the, the Dragon Tattoo trailer. I think it's it, it sold the movie, uh, maybe not in, in the most complete way. It, it's, a, it's a big movie with a lot of rough edges, but it, was, it, it sold the intent of the movie. I think it, it sold the spirit of the movie well. What did you think? Oh, I definitely think so, especially considering that um, Lisbeth Salander is such a critical part of the story, and the trailer really sets her up first, so that we know this is really going to be the kind of the tale of Lisbeth Salander before we jump into setting up the mystery. And I thought that was a really smart way to kind of set this up because you know she is such a key element to making this trilogy work. It's it's like Hannibal Lecter in The Silence of the Lambs. Her Great character comparison. carries so much weight that that it is a I mean to me she is the critical element of making the story work. And when you see Numi working as Lisbeth in this trailer, I for me I see exactly kind of the vision of the book brought to life. So for me, it, it worked really well. And even the American trailer also did that well. I think both trailers really captured the essence of, of uh, Lisbeth Salander and then the, and then the mystery. So I think that it, it this was a, 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 for, for a very big, complicated story. I think both trailers were actually cut together really nicely. I do too, and I think you know the the benefit that they have for the trailer in particular is that there's just no way 
to actually give away anything meaningful in the story. Right, yeah. It's, Im- it's impossible to do that because this entire movie is context. Like, without the benefit of the, the narrative thread, you're not going to understand. No matter what they show you, what little flashes of imagery they show you, what little little bits of intrigue or slices of body, are they, you're not going to understand, uh, you know, what's going on there. And I think that makes it very satisfying and intriguing. That is the benefit of cutting a trailer for a, a thriller film, I think. In in large part, they get away with a lot. And uh, but But this is a film that I think does it very, very well. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, about the title? I, I yeah, I mean the the title of the film as it was released in Sweden and the book is actually Men Who Hate Women. And I I, I found it interesting that um that's that whatever point that was, I don't know if it was when they they brought it over or translated it into English that the title became The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, and hence the rest of the titles subsequently, or maybe it became that after the second book, which was the girl who played with fire, um, because that I think, you know, might be the kind of the, the key title where it's pretty much the same in both languages, the girl who played with fire, because by the time you get to the third book, I think that the, the, uh, the Swedish title for the third book, here it is the, the air castle that was blown up. (laughs) <laughs> That's the literal translation of the Swedish title. And I think it's, it just is one of those titles where it's, uh, you know, they were, it's probably a phrase in Swedish that might translate better than it does. And then, so I think what they did is they said, okay, when we translate this to English, we'll just do, we'll stick with the girl who uh, kind of formula that started with the girl who played with file at fire. And then we'll go to, you know, the girl with the dragon tattoo and kind of create it from there because even the books, as they've continued after, um, I mean, Stieg Larsson had a, a, a number of them outlined and uh, somebody else has come in to continue writing them. And now there's what the girl who the girl in the spider's web and the girl who takes an eye for an eye. Yeah. David Lagerkrantz. Right. So those books are out there. And um, but it's all part of this millennium series that really focus on uh, this investigative journalist, uh, Mikhail Bloomquist, who is a publisher of this magazine, Millennium, and uh, unrelated to our conversation entirely. I love the book, the Swedish book covers, because they all look like the cover of the Millennium magazines, which which looks just like a magazine with exactly what you'd see. Um, So I I think that they've now latched on to that. I just, uh, you know, uh, the title Men Who Hate Women um, it's an interesting title. I don't find it as catchy for a film. Like the girl with the dragon tattoo is a really visual title. Men who hate women sounds like, uh, you know, an, an article somebody writes for their dissertation or something like that. You know, it doesn't quite have as much of a ring to it. Although in context of kind of that millennium, um, magazine cover for the book, where it's millennium and then it's like an article is called men who hate women. And that's almost how the, how it's set up. It makes sense in that context. But for the film, I think this is really a much stronger title, even if it doesn't t- tie into the overall story at all. Yeah. And, you know, it fits Stieg Larsson, um, you know, he, as a Swedish journalist, like he's writing it from a, an astute 
professional perspective, and it, it makes sense that it would feel very natural to his ear. I think narratively it's really interesting, though, and I think it does make a difference in how you look at the major characters in the movie. Men Who Hate Women uh, is is a story about the, the violence that men do against women. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is an origin story of an avenging feminist angel, and that is a very different setup, right? It is the story about the girl and what she does to these men who have wronged her in her life, and Men Who Hate Women is a story of the men doing the wrongs, and I think that's really important. And I think as a journalist, Stieg Larsson is telling the first story as a narrative uh, that we get a lot of energy out of, and we we are moved by the girl with the dragon tattoo and that that you know that naming schema that they they as you say latched onto uh, makes a big difference, and it's it's much more satisfying. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Man, that was that was heavy. They almost been warned they at least bit there in the special flicka. Men missbedömningen inte hon är vår absolut bästa researcher. Vad kan du berätta för mig om Blomqvist? Mikael Blomqvist, även känd som Kalle Blomqvist. Ett smeknamn han fick efter att ha klarat upp några bankrån på 80-talet. Sen dess har han varit en offentlig person utan någon större hemlighet. Ja, du känner inte min familj. Du vet inte vad de är i stånd till. En av de där personerna tog livet av vargen. is the next reel everybody i'm pete wright and that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight in the show we're kicking off our series on the swedish millennium series with the niels arden oplev's introduction to the wonderful lisbeth salander in 2009's the girl with the dragon tattoo before we get into that you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on twitter and facebook at the next reel. And if you enjoy this show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great films, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members only weekend show, and get better chances of being part of our listeners choice episodes. Head on over to patreon.com/thenextreel. This movie was tougher than I remembered, um, and and I'm I'm feeling like, like I'm a little bit of a deficit because I I don't remember the original uh, film and the extended edition. I think adds some things um, that that make the whole thing a little bit uh, rough around the edges. But man, I still really enjoy it. Well, and that's uh, I think something uh, that we definitely will need to talk about because you watched the extended version, which basically is the three-hour version that is the kind of the two ninety-minute uh, TV episodes. Yeah. Essentially, I watched the theatrical version, which was the two and a half hour. It's still very long, but it's it's yeah. I lose a half hour. And my understanding is that there's actually more of I'm speaking of you know the title that we were just talking about. Um, the men who hate women. Um, the the theatrical version, Mikael Bloomquist, very much is a uh, a good man. And my understanding in the extended edition is that he, there's he's not necessarily a man who hates women, but he certainly is uh, maybe a little more. I don't even know if womanizing is right, but it certainly seems like. There's more women in his life in the in the version. 
that you watched. In the theatrical, does he actually have sex with his uh, partner at the at Millennium? No. Yeah, he they 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 have they do uh, have, there is a sex scene between him and and his uh, his partner there. So we we Erica. It, it Erica yeah it cements their relationship uh but uh, you know very clearly. Tell you what it does. It's really interesting. It makes when Lisbeth uh you know makes her move on him in the middle of the night that night, uh, it makes it much more awkward because you know that he is in a relationship with this other woman. And right. and that relationship comes back around. So he's actually effectively having an affair um, with Lisbeth, uh, you know, uh, on Erica. And th- that makes it a, a little bit more hurtful, I think, and, and a little bit more powerful. So I, that was a piece I actually liked. Well, and that's something that they return to in the uh, David Fincher remake, where, yeah. uh, you know, Lisbeth goes off on her um, off on her uh, journey, I guess, to, to frame uh, Venestrum. And she goes to the islands and she's got her blonde wig and all that sort of stuff. And she comes back and, you know, having freed uh, uh, Bloomquist from this whole uh, debacle that he had been in with Venestrum, um, she buys him that leather jacket and, you know, really nice. And she goes to give it to him and she goes to Millennium and, and she pulls up and she sees uh, Mikhail leaving arm in arm with Erica. Now, I don't know if that's something that is brought back because, I mean, that was a, gr- that was a great ending in that version. And see, I love that because the, the theatrical version ends with her in her blonde wig, just kind of like, walking away down the beach in the Cayman Islands. And it's like, you know, okay, so she succeeded, but it was really not, it, 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 for me, it's, it took some of the power out of it. Yeah. And, and this one, it does come back to that. There is the scene where uh, she, and it, it's much closer. If I remember in the, uh, in the Fincher version, it's, she's kind of down a level and they're kind of farther away uh, yeah. and it's at night and it's a little harder to see in this one. You, you wonder how they didn't see each other. She's like right across the street as they come yeah. out of this <laughs> this little shop <laughs> or out of millennium. They're, they're in the millennium offices and she's waiting outside and uh, they, they miss her and they walk off arm in arm and she's very upset. And then, and, and we do end in that same way. She's walking down the beach uh, with the wig. Uh, and, um, you know, that's just her sort of moving on with her life. But I, I did like that. The other thing I liked about the extended edition is that Yana is uh, is outed as uh, the, the spy for Renestrom. And oh, sure. I, I think that was an important piece. We see the I, I don't remember how much we see of him as the as the insider in Millennium. But in this one, we have him, um, you know, he's he's found out that he's been getting copies of every email sent uh, routed through his computer um, and that he's forwarding all these emails to Vernestrom's people. And, uh, you know, they they discover it. They decide that they're going to use him and start planning information so that he sends false information to Vernestrom's people. Uh, at the end, they bring down Vernestrom and he is uh, brought into Erica's office and, and terminated. Uh, and and uh, I, that that I thought was an interesting little piece. It was just enough of an insert story, like it's like an F story at this point, given how complex this thing is. But I liked it that it still felt sort of well-rounded um, that that we got to see this guy come from, you know, member of the team to uh, disgraced former employee, um, you know, in the course of, of those three hours. 
and none of that is in the theatrical cut. Yeah, it's all it's completely non-existent. So yeah, I mean it's it's just one of those things where you know as you trim time, obviously those F stories as you call it do end up falling by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still a satisfying watch for me. I didn't necessarily need it to be there. But in context of, you know, getting everything I can out of that novel and getting it up onto the screen, there is kind of that that desire to kind of still have it in there. There are still pieces, though, Andy, that I thought were interesting. Now, you've read the book, too, right? Have you, you're, have I, you done the book? I did. I, I read the books before I watched the original trilogy back when they were in theaters. Yeah. Um, and I haven't probably, read them since. probably uh, 11 years ago now or something like that, right? I mean, it's been It wasn't quite that. No, it was it was right before. So they okay. these came out in the U.S. in, what, 2010? So yeah. it was probably 2010. Okay. Um, one of the, and, and it's been probably that long for me too. I mean, you know, if seven, eight years, right? Right. So um, my memory of the books is a little bit iffy, but one of the things I remember from the book is that the relationships between Mikhail and the family were more well-rounded. Like he, they were weirder. Uh, they were, uh, there was more depth to them. Uh, I know he had. When you say the family, are you talking about his the personal Vangers. family? No, the Vangers. Oh, okay. Family. Oh, the Vangers. Okay. Right. Yeah. Although I know we had more of a relationship between him and his sister in the book as well. That was something I remember. I was glad she was even in the in the movie, but um, uh, I, I think she was she was more of a, a character in the in the book, if I recall. But but we got to know the the Vanger family on Hedestad, um, you know, at at greater depth, and that is a piece of the movie that I think is, is it's a little bit empty. Like I, I felt empty with those relationships between Mikhail and the people that he was researching, the extended families, he was learning more about them. Uh, this felt, uh, uh, I, I guess the closest parallel I could have to it is how I felt with a second act of, um, you know, of, of murder on the Orient Express, right? It was just, it was just fast and it left me wanting, uh, wanting a little bit more. So they added some of these relationships like Yana at Millennium, uh, at the expense of beefing up some of the other relationships with the family on Hedestad. And I think that was an interesting way to, or an interesting choice, and I think a limited choice uh, in, in you know, finding a greater affinity to the novel, to the source material. Um, and so personally, I felt a little bit jaded about that. And it also made the overall storytelling just a little rough, like perforated uh, over the course of the three hours. See, I can't remember how much of the family we get in the in the book, but uh, certainly the theatrical cut, it's not a lot. I mean, uh, primarily it's it's Henrik before he goes into the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Martin who kind of becomes the uh, you know the the confidant, um, right. and then the uh, obviously the uh, antagonist. Um, and, uh, a little bit of, uh, is it, uh, Cecilia, I think is the one that he kind of, you know, they befriend and then she's kind of interested in him. Um, other than that, it's, you get kind of the scene when everybody, uh, is together while Henrik's in the hospital and they want him out. And that's kind of the one big moment until, um, uh, what's the, the, until Harold, until he breaks into Harold's place. Right, right. It's there's, right. there's just not much. And, and 
you're right for a story where it's like you know you you're doing this kind of as they say kind of that closed room mystery story you do want to get a little bit more of the people who are kind of considered the suspects other than through kind of the flashbacks that we get and looking at the photos of them well and speaking of looking at the photos you have to uh, i think pull apart a little bit how uh, oplev is a director and uh, you know as the the team puts together a film that spends so much time trying to make research sexy. Uh, The number of times we watch him scanning photos and scrolling through iPhoto and, you know, sending email um, to kind of dramatic, uh, you know, dance music. uh, Does does that work for you? Well, that's a I mean, it it works in context of just getting the story onto the celluloid and and getting it out there, but it isn't as good as it is in Fincher's version. And I think you know this is an interesting point to kind of bring that version in a little more because I, I actually watched them um, back to back, and I, I I have to say I mean Fincher is just such an exceptional director that he makes all of that stuff just so interesting to look at. Um, I don't think that uh, Nils Arden Oplu has the same strengths in that capacity that Fincher does. Um, and and to that end, I felt the the film a little lacking in in kind of that cinematic storytelling. Like it was just dissolve across a screen of email and then dissolve. Like you have kind of multiple dissolves of different things as they're kind of coming across the screen. And it's just like, okay, that's great. It's, it's, it's average, I guess. Um, that being said, um, I, I still prefer this version to the Fincher version. As much as I love Fincher as a director, it's just there are things like that that just come across as, it's storytelling we have to get across, uh, you know, and they just didn't come up with a better way to do it. See, I, I actually, it works for me, and I, correct me on this because I'm, I'm sure I'm going to start lying. I just don't remember, uh, I, I don't remember these sequences as clearly as I should in the Fincher version. But um, in this version, the thing that I like the most is that it is very pedestrian technology, right? I mean, it's just the stuff that you go out and that comes with the computer. You know what I mean? Like they didn't invest in fancy uh, graphics. They didn't, you know, developing any sort of, um, you know, fancy art for the screens. They didn't in- invest in some, you know, fancy non-existent uh, technology that's going to help analyze photos. Right? There's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of scanning and taping. There are conversations with him and his graphic designer at Millennium, where the graphic designer says, "Man, it's too blurry. What you are asking cannot be done." Like that's a really rewarding, you know. Conversation conversation in, you know, when we're just, you know, drowning in movies where technology can do the impossible thing. And I I think this movie is a a real celebration of just, you know, shoe leather, right? I mean, just straight up doing the work. And uh, we spend enough time staring at that little picture of the blurry guy in the blue sweater uh, that by the time he figures out who the blurry guy in the blue sweater sweater, sweater is, or, or, you know, when Lisbeth figures that out, um, that becomes a shocking reveal and an exciting reveal and a rewarding reveal. And I think that was that was handled really very well here. To me, it works in context of the story, but it's, um, I guess what I'm saying is it's just a little more interesting to look at when, when Fincher handles it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, can we can we talk a little bit about the sexual violence 
this is a it. This is a hard. This is a hard movie to watch. It is, and I think that um, it's it's something that Stieg Larsson was kind of dealing with in, in when he was telling this story is just this idea of violence, and especially as it uh, relates to women in particular. Uh, this woman, um, uh, Lisbeth Solander, and uh, but how she uh, never allows herself to become just a victim. You know, she she uses her strength to kind of find her way through it, whether it's in the brief flashbacks we have of um, kind of setting her father on fire or uh, whether it's 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 getting back at uh, the uh, at uh, Nils Bjurman, the uh, uh, it's it's her legal guardian. Yeah, it's it's some pretty horrific stuff that she ends up having to go through. And it's it's um it's it's very difficult to watch the scenes but what i do appreciate about it is that um that you see lisbeth find a way to not allow herself to be um, left as a victim and what's great about this story and having lisbeth in it partnering up with mikhail to solve this 40-year-old mystery of this missing girl is that she is not allowing harriet to be a victim. And what's great about the story of Harriet is Harriet was in the same place as Lisbeth was. And she also did not allow herself to be a victim. I mean, she had been a victim to her father. Uh, then she took matters into her own hands. Then she was a, a victim of her brother. And she, again, took matters into her own hands. And yes, that meant she had to pretend that she was dead or had disappeared until uh, Mikhail figured it all out. But these these are stories of women who are put into horrific situations and and you know have the strength to find a way through it. And so I do feel as difficult as it is to watch, um, there is power to what these women do. Yeah, and I I agree with that. And I think you know, particularly uh, Elizabeth's case, um, you know, I'm, I I I think the comparison to her as a a superhero you know origin story is uh, to her story as a superhero origin story is it's one that really sticks with me. You know, she ends up using uh, her tools to inflict great uh, essentially violence on the men that have have wronged her, and uh, you know, she's physically violent to the men in the who who jump her in the um, in the subway. Uh, she uses a, a sort of psychological or technological violence to to uh, break into um, you know Mikael's deepest secrets, and she does it for hire because of just you know you get the sense that it's just sort of a generalized disrespect, uh, but ends up trying to right uh, that wrong over the course of the movie. She uses, uh, again, great physical violence against um, Niels Bjurman. Uh, it, it is um, it is dramatic and yet, you know, as stomach-churning of a sequence as it is, it is uh, it comes off as remarkably rewarding uh, to, to watch her take back that power. Um, uh, it's I found her really great and and you know this is one of those uh, Fincher versus uh, Oplev pieces this is I vastly prefer Numi Rapace's um, uh, performance here uh, and I wish so much that she had had played Salander in Fincher's uh, version well I yeah I mean she's she is really the reason to uh, to yeah. watch these movies I mean she really 
just blows up up the screen. She's just mesmerizing in every way. I also, um, jumping back to what you had been saying just before that, though, I also think it's really interesting and and powerful to see the scene at the end when she's watching uh, Martin die after Martin kind of crashes. And here you have this horrific man who had just, as he just was talking to uh, Mikhail, who he was about to kill, he was talking about how fascinating it is to to watch these people die and see them that 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 look in their eye when they give up realizing that you know there's no way out. It's just like it's just awful. Like hearing him say stuff like that is just disgusting and it's frightening. Yeah. And then at the end, he's trapped in the car now and you, he sees her legs standing there as she watches him and uh and then you know the the car ignites and everything and and she watches him and it's just this really interesting kind of flip-flop of of her now kind of in his shoes and what i really like about the scene the way it plays out here is um which it doesn't play out this this way in uh, the fincher version where uh, uh mikhail actually thinks that uh that she killed him you know, he's kind of like, what did you do? Did you, did you kill him? And she's just like, no, you know, but he died. And it's almost like, he's not sure. It's like, okay, but you know, what does that mean? And then, you know, I found that really interesting psychological, um, kind of exploration between the two of them as it kind of dealt with all of that. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting observation. I, the way I read it was that he knew that, you know, he, he, I, I, my impression was that he believed what she was saying and that he was deeply conflicted about whether or not that was an act of murder, right? That her well, not doing something was, you know, when she says he burned to death, uh, could you have saved him? Or, or is that not sure. in the original? Because they have that conversation, no, 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 right? It is. But I mean, but I, I guess I just meant initially when he, yeah. when she first comes back and, uh, you know, and, and she, and he's asking her and she's like, he's dead. And I, you know, his initial reaction is she just killed him. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, you can see his, you know, his subtext as he's, as he's talking and everything real thinking that, Oh my God, this woman just, she killed this guy. Like, I, I don't know if that was right. I mean, he's a terrible guy, but I'm not sure that was right. And then yes, as the conversation goes, it is that is, it is that, uh, that, uh, you know, you know, he burned to death. Could you have saved him? Yeah. Yes. All of that is there. And it, the conflict within him is still there, but I love how initially it's like this, this doubt with that he has of her as a person that this is this woman who ostensibly just killed somebody. Yeah. Right. Something else about her character that I think is so interesting is that, that the way that Numi plays, uh, Lisbeth, it's, it's amazing how she is so tough. She is so, uh, so much like this raging animal on the outside, but we get moments throughout where you can see right through her, and and it's it's powerful where you can see this fragile little girl kind of uh, buried underneath that that very rough, um, uh, very uh, you know mean facade that she has, and I love that about her. I, I think that that makes her character so interesting to look at. And then you have these moments like where she, she uh, toward the end of the film where she goes and meets with her mom and, and which is a nice setup for what we're going to be getting in parts two and three, which is probably why they left the whole bit with the mom out of the American version. Right. But it's, but it's, it adds to that element that we get of her. And it's just, it's really, it, 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 again, going back to her as this 
character that makes this film so interesting, I, I, I think that it's critical. And just as an interesting side note, Numi's real mother played her mom in that little bit. Oh, that's so, cool. that's very sweet. Yes, it is. You know, it's interesting before we uh, just before we move into our deep scene dive, which I'm excited to do, Andy, there is this is an interesting parallel. And I think that you you noted in our notes here uh, uh, about the the love story and the crime story that are sort of interleaved over the narrative of the film. I I found uh, such a strength in watching that um, in this uh, as the film played out. The way that we get kind of the balance between these these characters, uh, Mikhail and Lisbeth, and their story paired with this mystery that they're solving. And it made me think right back to the Ricardo Darín film that we just watched, The Secret in Their Eyes, which also had a brilliant blending of those two stories, which made that film work so incredibly well. And, um, you know, it's just it's a, it's a small comparison. But I definitely think it's one worth noting in this uh, particular film because it is something that makes this film, I think, stand out above probably a lot of just kind of what you would see as the as the kind of the standard uh, you know, closed room mysteries. Yeah, I totally agree. That that's a fantastic parallel, and it just uh, you know these it, it's one of those things. These movies cement each other's success for me, uh, just in terms of the the structure. Um, and and speaking of structure, uh, this. This has a, a film told in maybe what sixteen acts. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very uh, you know Return of the King esque, yeah. right? It's a, right. you know it's just, you've got this little story, and then you got that story, and here's this ending, and that ending, and this ending, and that ending. It's all, it's kind of all the over the place. It really feels very novelistic. It doesn't yeah. really have a good sense of uh, the kind of a three act structure. Yeah. I don't know if that's a problem, but it it's I mean the film is a success regardless of how you. Uh, you know, how you look at it. But in the sense of cinematic uh, kind of story structure, it doesn't really fit. No, not not so much. Let's do the deep scene dive, Andy. Let's do it. Uh, the, the scene that we are talking about here, the scene that we think really is representative of the of the the tone of the film that doesn't involve sexual violence is the scene where Mikhail and Lisbeth meet face to face for the very first time. It's a, it's a wonderful little scene that takes place, at least in my version, it's an hour and 11 minutes into the film. Um, after we get, uh, you know, M- uh, Mikhail has already been doing his investigation and he gets this clue from Wasp about these, uh, these biblical references for these, these women. And he's able to, from that, piece together kind of who they are and how they died. And then he he talks to uh, to Henrik's lawyer, uh, Froda, and uh, is asking about this. And uh, he's like, yeah, I might have an idea how that happened. And cut to uh, here we are in our scene where we have uh, Lisbeth asleep in bed. The door, uh, somebody knocks at the door. It's uh, Mikhail, and he's here to talk to her. I, I love this sequence, and and in my version, it is my version, the version I recut for American <laughs> audiences. Uh, it, it happens at the uh, about the eighty six minute mark. Uh, it is the uh, the cliffhanger scene at the end of part one of the girl with the dragon tattoo. Uh, so at the end of this scene, it cuts to closing credits and end music, 
And then it's the whole thing starts again right in the middle of, of the release. And in fact, we didn't mention this, but Netflix has the entire Dragon Trilogy. They're calling it the Dragon Trilogy. It is essentially the TV series in six parts. And so you can watch it uh, streaming right now, and you'll see what I mean. It's a very strange and jarring thing if you're used to the theatrical release because it, the movie just is over. It's it's over at an hour and a half, and you're ready to start the new thing, and it ends on this scene. So that's an aside. Um what I love about this scene is just how uh, pragmatic both of these characters are, right? I mean, it, it feels like as much as this is a dance between these two characters, both of them have very clear intentions. He wants to solve this for his reasons because he's been hired to do it and he's becoming obsessed with this uh, with this case and he believes there's a case there. She wants to do it because he she believes that he has been, uh, that, that Bloomquist was set up and that uh, she's trying to make good uh, on her relationship with him. You can tell that she's, or at least I read into that this, that she has some underlying sort of seething guilt that she is trying to to satiate that she believes he's he is a better person than he was set up to be, uh, and um, and that she, you know a forty year old uh, murder of a young girl is is checks all the boxes for her, and and you can see all of this played out uh, in in a very tight space of her apartment. Yeah, and it's it's not overly uh, a complex uh, as far as how it's put together. It's in I I would say it's actually fairly simple. You know, it starts off in her bedroom in in a kind of a single of her sleeping. Uh, it kind of comes down from the curtains to her. We see her sleeping. Then all of a sudden, you hear the knocking, and she gets up. And then behind her, we see this other woman sleeping in bed with her. Uh, and then she gets dressed, she goes to the door. So, and then now we're at our next location, which is the front door. And then it's really kind of a back and forth as, as she and Mikhail have this conversation before she lets him in. And then he comes in. And after a brief little bit right there by the door of the three of them, they go into the kitchen and he and she have this, this final confrontation or conversation, I should say, about this, this case that he knows, she knows that he's working on. And he asks her at that point, saying, I need your help. Like so many people in her life, he's not here to, uh, for legal reasons, he's not here to get her arrested or anything like that. He has stepped aside and, and gotten past all that stuff of her abusing her um, her abilities by continuing to spy on him and what he's up to. He's gotten past all that and said, this is a person who can help me and I am going to accept that help and, or I'm going to ask for it and, and see if she will uh, you know, be a partner with me in this. I think that's great. I love the way that that scene plays out. I think it's really uh, nice. I, I think there's also a, a small little bit, kind of that little co- comedy bit about the coffee, which I think is just also kind of helps break the ice a little bit. But I, I think all in all, I, it's it's a really interesting scene because largely Lisbeth doesn't have much to do in it other than kind of she puts up her barriers and she's like, you know, why are you here? What are you here for? What do you want? Um, which I think is great. And it's it's we don't even get her answer at the end of the scene. He just says, you know, I need your help. I want you to come and help me figure this out. And you just get this shot of her face as she's looking kind of everything is rattling through her brains as she's trying to figure out what to do. And then in the theatrical cut, all of a sudden you get a hint of uh, Jacob Groth's music slowly starting to build as we then cut to 
her on the motorbike, a kind of establishing shot of her riding down the the country road as she's heading up to Hedestad. And I think that's a really great way to kind of move us into this partnership. I do too. And Eric Kress is the, the man behind the camera. And I found it really interesting. It's hard to compare... Uh, generally to Fincher. Um, but I, I couldn't help it in this sequence in particular, because this sequence is also terrific in the Fitch, Fincher version. Um, the framing, even though Fincher moves his camera a lot in a lot of very small and subtle ways, the camera is always moving in, in some little bit around character close-ups. In this case, the framings of faces, I couldn't help but think this feels very Fincher to me. The way we open on her, uh, you know, uh, her sideways, uh, you know, she's laying down in bed and her eyes open and she gets up uh, and we, uh, you know, focus on the the woman that's in bed with her. Um, you know, the way we we kind of alternate between character faces, even though the camera isn't moving all that much in this version, it still feels uh, very centered on character, which I think uh, does such great service to the motivations and intentions that these two actors are trying to convey. It just works so well for me. Yeah, I, I definitely agree there. I mean, there are this film is interesting as we go through it. There are times when Cress has a lot of camera movement going on throughout, particularly as Bloomquist is digging into the investigations and he's up on Hedestat. But moments like this, um, where it's really character, the camera all of a sudden really settles down and focuses on them and allows them to kind of do their stuff. Uh, it does that several times throughout the film, which is really great. And in this particular uh, case, it works really nicely. And even when it's just simple, you know, back and forth shot reverse shot as we have mm -hmm. uh, Mikhail on one side of the door and her on the other side with the chain between them. It It's just nicely framed and it works well in context of that barrier that uh, is between these two characters as, as he's trying to bring her into, into his world officially, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, th I think so too. Uh, you know, I love the the uh, production design. Uh, Niels Sager, Sager, that's wrong. Sounds good to me. I, okay. don't, I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> delightful, <laughs> delightful. Uh, production design is terrific. The the apartment feels uh, very much like someplace uh, Lisbeth would would live. Uh, it is uh, rundown and it is abused. Uh, and the coffee, you can just feel it. It's probably three days old. Uh, but uh, my goodness, I just love being in that apartment. Uh, it feels, uh, it, you know, feels like my first apartment. Ah, what's funny is you were in my first apartment. <laughs> I, it did look just like this. <laughs> it was yellower. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that and then I think that... Uh, I don't know if, how much I have to say about the costumes in this particular scene, but yeah. uh, is it Sila Rorby? Uh, the costumes, uh, notably uh, Lisbeth's costumes, I think are just really strong in this. I think everything that they do with the, the hair, makeup, the costumes, uh, everything that Numi is bringing to the table really make um, Lisbeth a strong character. And actually, that's something interesting in this scene is, you know, you see Lisbeth, she's uh, completely naked in bed with uh with her uh girlfriend um man is she buff i mean it's it's you get this real sense that this is a this is this woman who um 
you know, being this girly girl is not what she's about. She's just a tough, tough uh, woman. And I mean, Numi spent seven months training to get herself transformed into Lizbeth, not just with that, but just kind of all aspects of it. And it's, I think it really shows. Oh, my goodness. Uh, You know, that that actually gets to, I I think, one of the most interesting and subtle to me disappointments of of the film. Um, and, And I have to compare it to uh, Red Dragon. Um, you know, when we're talking about Red Dragon, we get some of the most beautiful hero shots of the dragon uh, tattoo uh, in in the film. And in this one, all I wanted was to see more of that amazing dragon tattoo. But we <laughs> never get a really satisfying hero shot of, of the tattoo. It is all left to these subtleties, or, uh, you know, these kind of distant you know, longer shots or medium shots and that, that don't actually linger on the artwork. And that's what I wanted. You know, that's what I wanted the most. It, it, you know, it's interesting. There is a sequence in the uh, the release that I watch where we see her get a tattoo. Uh, did you, uh, was there one in the, in the theatrical release where she goes, it's after her first uh, encounter with, um, with Nils, her guardian? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, because that's where she kind of uh, gets the. I don't know if it's where she gets the idea or where she's kind of exploring okay. All right. the right way to kind of like buying this tool to use to yeah. get back at it to get the largest needle that's available. Yeah. I thought that was a great scene. Right. Anyway, uh, so I, I could have used more tattoo, and this would have been the scene to do it. Um, you know, because she is, as you say, she's naked, and when she gets out of bed, that her back is uh, it is uh, snakes under a blanket of muscle. It is just amazing. Uh, power uh, and it's an incredible demonstration of physique. <laughs> she did, and it's it's an interesting. Uh, we'll t- probably talk. I mean, we'll be talking about Numi for a, a yeah. bit with this series, but I mean, you know, she worked on this whole trilogy for a year and a half. She said that it, this character Elizabeth got into her head so much that when she was done, she really she had to throw up. She like you know immediately had to just go and just throw up up a bunch and she kind of saw this as this her body uh, finding a way to kind of purge the character and everything that it had kind of brought into her i found that so interesting that it it, it can basically was this physical manifestation of the character that she had to find a way to expunge oh my goodness i i you know yeah. i can't even imagine being in somebody else's head quite so long yeah right Especially a, a dark character like this. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, we should also just mention that uh, Numi, um, while largely she brought Lizbeth to life from within her and from what uh, Larson had written on the page, but she did also mention that the characters in Nikita and True Romance were also some character inspirations that she and that she had. Do you have a, do you have a, uh, did you see a, a parallel between those characters? I think it's an interesting, uh, I, uh, an interesting pairing of those two characters. I, I think that I, I do see maybe what she was pulling from. They're definitely strong characters. They're very interesting female characters that, um, that definitely have their own strengths in uh, the world of violence. And so I can see how those might have been draws for her. You know, it's funny. I, I, I didn't. Those two didn't come up for me. But the one character that I kept thinking, or at least I should say, the one strong, uh, you know, sort of crazed woman uh, in film, and and I, you know, it's we've talked about her is uh, Franca Potente in, in Run Lola Run. Mm. Um, 
which I, you know, she's the the parallel for me to, um, you know, obviously less violent, but certainly, you know, given to uh, doing whatever it takes to to um, you know make the world right. Uh, I, I saw the the parallel just in the physicality and the strength that they bring to to the roles. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, we, we talked a lot about Numi. We should also just mention Michael Nyquist uh, yeah. as Mikhail Bloomquist, who's um, I mean he I think he works really well as this character, and it's just so sad, you know he. After this trilogy, he really kind of blossomed, and he was, I shouldn't say blossomed, I mean, he had been acting for uh, decades, but I think he really started expanding into the international world, and certainly we saw a lot more of him in in, uh, U.S. films, Um, and it's just so sad that he passed away, uh, I think, just back in April. Very sad. Uh, Just watched him again as uh, Viggo Tarasov in John Wick. Ah, Ah, good stuff. Such good stuff. Music, Jacob Groth. You already mentioned the the uh, music of the film. You're a fan. I, I I like it. It's not uh it's not anything that uh, that blows me away, but I think it works in context of the film. Um, between the two, I think this has a little bit more of a theme that I do kind of like. Um, but I do think there's something about the atmospherics uh, brought uh, by the guys uh, behind the Fincher version. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I, I guess I can say. I, I don't love any of their music, but I, I find all of it interesting in different ways. Well, I'm with you. I, I can't. I feel like I can't love this music because the music of, of the Fincher version is so deeply in my brain. Um, it, it is a, a truly exceptional score for that film. Um, forgot to mention Ann Oster, Ostrud. Uh, did is uh, behind the editing of the film. I actually, it, weirdly, I wrote down in my notes that uh, considering it was two and a half hours, I wrote, wow, weirdly, it feels kind of rushed sometimes. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know why that is. I, I think that there's just so much story that they're trying to get across. Maybe it doesn't feel that way in the three-hour version. No, it, no, it definitely, <laughs> it definitely feels... <laughs> It definitely feels that way. That's one of the things I noticed is that it just it it's it's sort of relentless uh, in, in you know even at three hours it it feels like they are jamming an enormous amount of story in a, a very small bottle. It's it's very interesting how yeah. they do that. And again, going back to the the Fincher version, I remember that in both cases. In both films, we have scenes that are very short where we'll just get something. It, I mean, really, they kind of go back to that rule of screenwriting, you know, get in late, do what you need to do and get out early. And yeah. they do that very successfully in both versions just to kind of keep things moving because of the fact that they just have so much story to tell. You know, it's a really interesting point that you bring that up because I, I found myself thinking about that, particularly around Ingvar Herdvel, who played Dirk Froda. And uh, I'm sure I butchered all four of those words. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, there's a sequence in the hospital uh, where um, Mikael goes to talk to him about uh, the fact that uh, Heinrich has, uh, you know, he's had his heart attack and he needs to, he's in the hospital. And it's when Froda is about to tell him, yeah, I think I know, I think I know who might be behind it. And yeah. he takes forever to get the words out of his mouth. It feels like, I know it's just a couple of seconds, but it feels like, man, this the whole movie goes into slow motion because Froda forgets how to move his mouth, and I thought, wow, that is <laughs> remarkable that they allowed this to play in a movie that otherwise is is pretty relentless in cutting. Like there's just a lot of airspace in between uh, in between their lines. 
Yeah, that's uh, again. It's just it's it's interesting the the pacing, but I, yeah. you know, but I I do like that though because yeah. it allows for that roller coaster ride. You know, you want to have those faster moments and their slower moments. So I I I feel all in all watching it, I like I just I never felt bored. The film moves at a great pace, and the two and a half hours, like I was in it the whole time. Yeah, I was too. I was too. You want to talk yeah. about the script, Nicolaj Arcel and Rasmus Heisterberg. Uh, did the adaptation. They took a, a beefy novel that was uh, rather, uh, I don't know if complex is the right word, but just had a lot of details in it. And they found a way to to blend all of it. Were there elements that were in the book that uh, that I felt were missing? Sure. Maybe, maybe they are in the extended version. But on the whole, I think that they deliver in giving us this full uh, rounded story here. It, Niels Ardenoplov, uh the director, do you do you feel like you have a sense for what he is able to do? Does he have a style? I, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure if I've seen much else of his uh, cinematically, um, other than, uh, gosh, you know, I no, I because I, I know he's done a lot of TV stuff, but I think for films, I don't think I've seen anything else that he has done. So I, I don't know if I have a good handle on his style. Um, what I do feel watching this compared to the Fincher version is that he doesn't have the, 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 the uh, I don't know if prowess is the right word or just he's not as adept at his tools with cinematic storytelling that uh, as Fincher is. But I think he is still versatile at telling a good story. The, uh, so he did, after this, he did Dead Man Down, um, I remember talking about the trailer, but I never watched it. Uh, right, uh, which I, you know, I'm unfortunately I I saw it and I don't remember it very well. What I do remember, interestingly, is the the episode one of Mr. Robot that he did, uh, which I thought was fantastic. Episode Hello Friend. Uh, he then went and did the the uh, well, it was actually immediately before that he did the pilot for Under the Dome, the Stephen King uh, adaptation. Wow. He did the pilot for Midnight Texas uh, series. He did the pilot for Game of Silence. He did the pilot for Unforgettable. Uh, this was, and, and a couple of episodes. This was actually the first one that he did uh, uh, after Millennium in 2011. He uh, sort of made a, a, several years of his career around pilots or episode ones, uh, and they were kind of a mixed bag. I, I have not seen the Unforgettable uh, episode, so I, I haven't seen those. But the others, uh, Mr. Robot is definitely the highlight. And that is, you know, on the strength of a terrific concept and an outstanding script. Uh, so I don't know how much of that uh, is his, but it is it is a delightful um, bit of entertainment. And then he goes on to uh, Flatliner 17, Andy. Oh, what a shame. Right? I didn't see it, so I can't... I, it's not fair of me to judge, but just based on you know the trailer and what I had heard, I, I yeah. feel dis- I just feel disappointed that that's what he ended up doing. Exactly, so. that's exactly where I am. Yeah. I, you know, it it didn't break the six stars on IMDb uh, as you know worth rolling the dice on. And man, have I heard some scathing things about this movie, and not just Amazon review scathing. These are legit scathing things about this movie. Although it does make me wonder if may- if maybe that's why some of the actors signed on to be a part of that remake, just yeah. because of the fact that he was actually directing it. Anybody else in the cast or crew that you are interested in talking about? 
I, not really, other than I did want to just uh, point out, since we did talk about uh, King the Kingsman, the Golden Circle, the fact that uh, that Lena uh, Endre, uh, who plays Erica Berger, she uh, is the Queen of Sweden in that film. So there you I go. had not made that comparison at all, or that yeah. parallel at all. That's fantastic. She does not look the same to me. <laughs> not even a little bit. Oh, very funny. Oh, dear. Uh, how to do it award season? Uh, it did well for itself. The film uh, gathered 18 wins and 35 other nominations. Six of those wins and 12 of those other nominations just were for Numi and her performance uh, in this film. She really uh, just, you know, was the character to note. Um, over at, in Sweden, their Academy Awards, the Guldbag Awards, um, it won for Audience Award for uh, Niels Arden Oplu. Uh, Best Actress, Numi Rapace, and Best Film, Soren Staramos. Uh, It also was nominated for Best Cinematography by Eric Kress. Uh, He lost to Hoyt van Hoytema for The Girl and Supporting Actor Sven Bertil Taub, who plays Henrik Wanger. Uh, He lost to Kiel Berkvist for, let's see if I can say this, Brolapsfotografen. (laughs) 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 Woo, baby. I can't wait to hear from our Swedish listeners about how I did oh, on that one. Oh, this is this is a, this is horrible. This is horrible. I but know. I have to tell you, I'm very excited to to introduce you to my alter ego, Soren Starmouse. That's my favorite name in the world. All of a sudden, I didn't. Who knew? <laughs> Soren Starmouse. Yeah, it's pretty great. It's like a it's like an animated superhero, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Sword Star Mouse. Uh, over at the Saturn Awards, uh, our, the Academy of Motion Picture, um, uh, or the Academy of Horror, Sci-Fi, and Fantasy, uh, which I, I found it interesting that it was nominated because I, I, I guess under the horror vein, maybe, but it's not really fantasy or sci-fi. But Numi was nominated for Best Actress, and it was nominated for Best International Film. Mm-hmm. Um, Numi lost to Natalie Portman for Black Swan, and the film lost to Monsters. Um, so you know, it's it did it did well for itself considering uh, the type of film that it is. It's you know, I think largely it's not uh, it's it's a genre picture. I don't think it would normally get that much notice, but when you have such a strong performance as the foundation for your film, it's bound to get some recognition. And we've been talking obviously a bunch about Fincher's remake in 2011, but this thing has been uh, uh, let's let's just say aggressively parodied. Yes, especially because of the title, "The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo." It just allows for such great parodies as "The Dragon with the Girl Tattoo," or the the. the <laughs> Sorry, that's the girl. funnier than it deserves. <laughs> it, it, it's quite funny. Uh, you also have the girl with the sturgeon tattoo, the girl who fixed the umlaut, which is not quite as fun. The girl with the sandwich tattoo and the coach with the dragon tattoo. So I I don't know about I don't know what any of those are other than they are funny parody titles. I'm I'm looking at the uh the pictures <laughs> the pictures of the dragon with the girl tattoo by Adam Roberts and it's it's actually a dragon and you're looking at his very well muscled back and it has like a, a the silhouette of you know it's like the the one of those silhouettes that are on truckers mud flaps yeah right as a tattoo on its back it's it's not uh it's not elegant <laughs> <laughs> it's worth the chuckle it's worth a chuckle all right sometimes that's all you need <laughs> andy let's run the numbers 
Uh, this film uh, for this uh, adaptation, uh, the first entry of the Millennium Trilogy, Oplu had an estimated budget of $13 million, or $14.5 million in today's dollars. Uh, in all of our conversation about uh, him and what he was bringing to the table as far as a director here, we do have to note that we should compare what he had to work with with what Fincher had to work with, which was $96.3 million in today's dollars. Mm. So uh, for for a, a three-hour uh you know, ostensibly kind of a two-part TV special. <laughs> I think he did pretty good for himself compared <laughs> to Fincher. Uh, the movie did open in Sweden and Denmark on February 27th, 2009, kicking off its massive global release before hitting the U.S. on March 19th, 2010, in limited release opposite The Bounty Hunter, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, and Repo Men. It continued its international rollout through January 2012 when it finally opened in South Korea. All told, the movie was a massive global success. In Sweden, the movie went on to make over 109 million Swedish krona, which is about 16.4 million in today's dollars. I couldn't find specifics as to the Swedish box office, but my understanding is that this topped it. Here in the U.S., the movie went on to make 12.7 million, and internationally it ended up making 96.7 million, giving it an overall gross of 109.4 million, or 122.5 million in today's dollars. This movie was more profitable at the box office than Fincher's remake, too, and did end up with an adjusted profit per finish minute of 706000 All told, I'd say it's a great start for this trilogy. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with these uh, these new properties, uh, the new properties that are coming out from uh, from the new author, and uh, to see how they're making out. What do we know about the remaining remakes uh, of the American version? I know that uh, that Fincher and Zalian had signed on for the the other two. Where are they? I I have heard everybody involved, uh, whether it's uh, Rooney Mara or Daniel Craig or David Fincher, saying that it wasn't going to happen. I, I I don't I don't know if they're still talking about it, but um, I think that it's one of those things where it's like uh, the the Swedish versions were you know largely great films and very entertaining. And it didn't need to be remade in the first place. I mean, this is a foreign trilogy that my in-laws watched. I mean, that said to me everything <laughs> about the, you know, the 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 not necessary uh, fact that we needed an English version. Um, that being said, uh, last I heard that uh, Fede Alvarez, who we actually talked about with Labyrinth last week, um, was announced as the new director as of November 2016. So it's been a little while. Um but uh, I don't know if it's a, a full-on reboot of uh, Girl Who Played With Fire or if they're now just talking about rebooting the franchise with The Girl in the Spider's Web. So I'm not sure what direction they're going other than the fact that, um, yeah, it's they're, what, what is reported right now is Fede Alvarez directing The Girl in the Spider's Web is going to be released October 2018. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, you know, Claire Foy is on for um, is signed on f- uh, to play Lizbeth in the Girl in the Spider's Web, and obviously this is the next uh, kind of the the book. Uh, you know, the that is not the original uh, part of the original trilogy. Uh, she's you know she's Queen Elizabeth in the Crown. She's very popular and very talented. Um, you know, a young actress. So I'm, I'm really interested to see what she, if she can surprise us quite as well as, as, um, Numi, uh, or Rooney 
Yeah. Interesting. I wonder if Numi and Rooney ever got together. <laughs> I, I, now that I've said those names back to back, it was hard to say those names back to back. But now that I've done it, I want to do it a lot. <laughs> I feel like this is a moment where we really need uh, David Letterman at the Oscars. Numi? Yeah. Rooney. Numi. Rooney. Rooney. Numi. Numi. <laughs> I don't think Uma, ever... Oprah. All right. Well, this was a a great way to start uh, this, uh, at least our discussion of the trilogy uh, as it it stands, the Millennium Trilogy. Uh, And I hope it it, I hope the the other two movies stand uh, just as well. Andy, I'm eager to talk about them. It's a it's a great trilogy. It's it's a I mean, it's a great story. I, I think what I enjoy so much about it, having revisited it now is watching uh, Numi Rapace play this character. Uh, she is just mesmerizing every time she's on screen. The, the, the overall mystery of the story itself obviously is no longer a surprise to me. It's, you know, it, it, it doesn't bore me yet. I, and I think that is, again, like I said, just because it's so exciting to watch Elizabeth over the course of the story. And yes, it is very difficult to watch. There are some really hard scenes in here, um, but it's it's a solid, solid film. I think that the team here um, uh, did a great job with uh, kicking off this trilogy. I do too. Uh, I think it's time, Andy, for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, or you can just swipe over in your show notes and you can tap on the flickchart button and that link, and that will take you right over to this film in flickchart where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up to ours. Andy? All right. First off, we have the girl with the dragon tattoo or hot fuzz. I, am, I have to say hot fuzz. I, do you? <laughs> I was gonna. Yeah. I was gonna say, uh, "Girl with Dragon Tattoo." Oh, all right. No, no, I, I know. I would regret that. I would definitely regret that. <laughs> I, I can't do that. I, I'm gonna say so. Hot fuzz. fuzz. That's unfortunate. Okay. It is. It I really feel is. badly about that. The girl with the dragon tattoo, or the adventures of Baron Munchausen. Definitely the, the girl dragon with tattoo. dragon tattoo. The girl with the dragon tattoo, or the deer hunter. Uh, girl with the dragon tattoo. I will, uh, yeah, I'll agree with you on that one. The girl with the dragon tattoo. The girl with the dragon tattoo or big fish? Dragon Uh, tattoo for me. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're a big fish lover. I'm such a big fish lover. I know you are. It's okay. I'm going to give it to you. You don't have to feel bad No, no, no. I'm going to give it to you. Dragon tattoo. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, The girl with the dragon tattoo or the born supremacy? Girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah, I'm going to go with dragon tattoo. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Star Trek First Contact? Star Trek First Dragon Contact. Tattoo. Really? Dragon Tattoo for me. If it was not uh, First Contact, if there is, if it was, you know, one of the other ones, maybe. I am, I'm not firm on this. It's, I, I think I, I answered out of reflex. <laughs> so. <laughs> I had more you. problems with First Contact. Yeah. This Certainly time, much, so. many more than, yeah, this is, that's habit. Okay, I'll give you a dragon tattoo. Look at how weak I am. Okay. I know. Goodness. The girl with the dragon tattoo or Fat City. Girl with the dragon tattoo, Andy. I will say dragon tattoo. With a punch well. in the face. Oh, wow. The girl with the dragon tattoo or, oh, brother, where art thou? Oh. I'm going to say, oh, brother. Yeah, me too. 
All right. Well, that puts the girl with the dragon tattoo. It made it almost back right up to the middle. Yeah. It's at 167 out of 328 on our chart. So I think that's a, a pretty fair spot for the trilogy to kick off. It just, you know, started off against one of our tough ones. But again, we've talked about a lot of films that we love on the show. Yes, we have. What? How did that stack up on your personal uh, flick chart rank? It actually is pretty high. It, it's 344 out of 3884, which is about a 91%. So I think that's a, it's a pretty good spot. Definitely higher than the Fincher version. Um, I am uh, pretty happy with its position on my chart. It actually it actually rose right to the top for me, Andy, and I think unfairly. I, it ended up at 78 on my flick chart uh, out of 1,004 Ooh. movies, which is which is too high but you know it it won against family guy blue harvest <laughs> as it should as it should um uh, what if it had come up against the star wars holiday special what would i have done um anyway it's, he walks that means on letterbox it should be a four and a half star out of five it is not for me i have it at a four star with a like and that feels feels pretty good to me yeah, mine is a, a a four star and a like. That's that's where I sit with it also. So, oh well, aren't we twinsies? <laughs> we got we'll wear our twinsy jackets. We will tomorrow. wear our twinsy jackets tomorrow. All right. Well, that that puts us at, at the end of the first part. What is the second one? And do you ever get it confused with the third one? Because now the girl is just doing a lot of things. Yeah, now she's all over the place yeah. with uh, with fire and hornets and spiders mm-hmm. and eyes. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Uh, in this particular case, she is playing with fire. We are going to be uh, continuing the journey of Lisbeth Salander as we uh, kind of go down this road of exploring more about her backstory, which is going to be uh, exciting to see where we go with this one. I am excited to do it too, uh, and and I think this is I think this is a great trilogy. I'm very excited that we are uh, we're doing this. It feels like a long time coming. I think we talked about doing this in the first year of the podcast when we did the Fincher series, and so it, yeah, it I think, really, yeah, I think you're right. it really is uh, about time. Uh, Here we are finally, Andy. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Andy, what is it with people and reading their movies? There are a lot of people who gave this a one star because they had to read their movie. That is so dumb. I'm sorry. It is so dumb. This is terrible. And I think it's because we have been so spoiled culturally that we haven't that because so much of the global film industry has for so long been Hollywood, uh, that our exports are largely subtitled or dubbed or whatever. People around the world have had have grown up and adjusted to the fact that movies come in all shapes and sizes. Don't you think? Yes, I, I think so. And we I are super spoiled. This we're the spoiled spoiled brats. We are. This makes our fair country sound so petty and stupid. <laughs> I'm, yes. It's so stupid. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please 
read your movies, people. They're great movies. I'm this is this is becoming a, a trigger for me. It really is. Yeah, there's like 16, <laughs> 16 pages of one star comments on the English subtitled version of this. And yeah. most of those, I would say, are people complaining about subtitles. Yeah, terrible. Uh, I, I, would you like to? Would you like to start? Would you like me to start? How you feeling? I'll kick it off. All right. Uh, mine is by Stuart Topping. I'm going to read this in the uh, as as just straight up exactly as Stuart wrote it. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> this ear worst film rotten to the door shame on amazon for have this available for kids to watch i would give the a minus 10 and amazon a minus 20 for having this available set what <laughs> what there you go there you go it's almost like a secret code a little bit it is oh, <laughs> uh, rotten to the door pete rotten, rotten to the door, to the door. I'm rotten to the door. <laughs> Got to hit, hit the door running, Andy. <laughs> so I guess. <laughs> uh, my, my trailer comes from Amazon customer. And uh, given the, I, I don't know, you read just a few lines of the back of the uh, back of the box or the, the description. And, and I, maybe this would be answered. Uh, the <laughs> title is, I didn't realize it was all focused on violence towards women. I didn't realize this was all focused on violence towards women. If it had the original title from the book, I would never have watched it. Oh, my. Oh, I'm sorry, customer. That's that's one that uh, I, I think there are a lot of bad shoppers, too. <laughs> yeah. Just, just button clickers. Just that, button oh, clickers. I get this. Yeah. Stop yeah. clicking, people. Step back away from the keyboard. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season seven, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. <laughs> nice. I own this game. We shall see. Here we go, starting with an easy one. The Millennium Trilogy. <laughs> Seriously? The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played With Fire, The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Die Hard. Uh, well, Die Hard 1 and 2. Except Nothing Lasts Forever, which is where Die Hard came from, isn't on Audible. What? Crime of the Century! Okay, 1968 musicals. Uh, Mary Poppins. Nice. We've covered a lot of great movies that started as books. Books like East of Eden, Giant. Or All You Zombies, upon which Predestination was based. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. 
and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible. 